Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello and welcome to Operation Silver Screen. Our show's mission is centralized on Caitlin and I catching up and debriefing must-see films. However, we also have an additional tasking that comes with this assignment, which we refer to as our bonus objectives. The goal of this objective is to watch and debrief sequels and remakes of the classic and must-see films. Not only will we review these movies, but also analyze it from the perspective of its predecessors. So join us as we conduct a deep dive into these current films. And Caitlin, what is our bonus objective this time around? So this week took us on a melancholic journey through the capital of Norway. So grab your passport, grab a bicycle, because we're going to discuss Joachim Trier's Oslo Trilogy. This is a trilogy of three films that all take place in the city of Oslo. But this episode will be a little bit different than our previous bonus objectives because these films aren't actually connected to each other in a narrative sense. They are standalone stories, but they all share very similar themes and styles, and of course, they are all set in Oslo. The first film in this trilogy was filmed in 2006, and that film was titled Reprise. The second film was Oslo, August 31st, that came out in 2011. And the last one, and the one that we primarily want to talk about today, and it is currently receiving a lot of Oscar buzz as it was just nominated for Best Original Screenplay. And that film is The Worst Person in the World, released in 2021. This film just had a theatrical release in the U.S. this early February. It has been out for a while abroad, but it's now just coming to the U.S. theaters now. But it has been receiving lots and lots of buzz, both online and in the awards season discussions. Now, since we're talking about a series that is centered around the city of Oslo, I wanted to provide some interesting facts about Oslo that I found online for those of you who might not be as familiar with the city. And so the first one I will find is that the Nobel Peace Prize is actually awarded in Oslo. The recipient is selected by the Norwegian Nobel Committee, as was stated in the wishes of Alfred Nobel's will, and that happens every autumn. Another interesting fact that I didn't know is that it's actually a city of islands, so you can actually ferry across the different islands of Oslo. Another thing that was interesting that I saw was that it's also the home of a group called AHA, like an 80s group. They're big success from Norway, and I think in one of the films we actually hear some of AHA on the radio. I'm trying to think of what their most popular song was. I wish we could play a sound clip. <laughs> but they're from the 80s. I know you've heard it. Ah, oh, what's the song? Take on me. That's the song. Take on me. Oh. So AHA is from, from Oslo. So I thought that was probably one of the fun ones for me as someone who who likes music. And then a last fact that I, I saw was that it's actually known as Tiger City and there's a statue of a bronze tiger outside of Oslo Central Station and this comes from a poem which kind of uses a tiger to represent the city. There's just some fun Oslo facts that I found just because you'll see as we kind of go through this trilogy a little bit, Oslo very much is a character in itself of these films. So let's talk a little bit about these films as a whole but before we do that I just want to make a note that this is our spoiler free section of the podcast and a little bit later we'll give you a spoiler warning as we go into our classified section. Yes, and as you said, you know, this trilogy is very loosely, it's based more on its theme. Not only does it share the 
town, but it also has the common theme of memories, time, and identity. This actually wasn't even planned to be a trilogy until the third one came out. Uh, The director and the actor, the one that's been in all three of these films, Anders, he read the script and was like, man, this really is like the the final installment of a trilogy. I'm like, okay, yeah. And it, it, it worked. Yeah, Anders Danielson is one of the main actors in all three of these films and what he had to say about this trilogy is that they all kind of show a clash between ambition and reality in all three of these films and as one of the central person who's been involved in all of these you mean he would he has a good take on this just as much as the director himself and also another person who really went into this process was the writer Eskal Vogt who was the writer for all three films as well so these three people they really have a huge say in what went on with the story and the actor himself Anders who was actually just the main character in the second one he was like Sort of the, he was one of the leads in the first one, and in this one he's supporting, but he actually relates to this project as well because he himself is not only an actor, but also a doctor. Mm-hmm. And he says that he also deals with that same identity issue. So what is your opinion on this uh, collection of films that we have? So I think this trilogy, or the first two films, are great films. I saw the first, I mean, I saw the second one a couple years ago. Not the year that it came out. I think I, from what I remember, I found it on a list of recommended movies. And I think the list was movies depicting characters that are going through drug withdrawals and rehabilitation. And this is one of the movies that was high up on this list. Then I meant to go, I I love the second one. And I meant to go back and watch the first one. However, I never did. It just kind of fell off the list for me. I still knew of the first one and it's always been in the back of my mind but I just never made it a priority until you made mention of this third one that just came out and told me that it was part of this trilogy so I went out and watched the first one and I love the first one as well Uh, I think these are the two the first two and this third one are honest films they are very melancholy and they work very well Yeah, I agree with you. So my introduction to this was also through Oslo, August 31st. I watched this in 2011, actually, the year that it came out. And I think at that time, it was my second year of college when I I watched this. And that was a time for me when I was really watching and exploring a lot of different kinds of films. So that film stood out for me through my film journey, just as a character study and something that Oslo 31st, it takes place in one day, and not really a lot happens at to this character as far as plot line goes. You're just kind of seeing this slice of life for him as he gets out of rehab for the day and kind of follows what he does throughout that day, the people he interacts with, what he's going through emotionally, and it's very much a strong character study. So that really stood out to me at that time when I was getting to more into these kind of types of films and also starting to explore more uh, non-English language films as well. And that received a lot of, of praise. So this was my introduction to the trilogy, and I didn't even know that reprise even existed at that time but i watched it it was just kind of a standalone film until about the end of this year when suddenly i started seeing all this buzz for the worst person in the world i think mostly on twitter is where i saw it in social media kind of this film circles there all and i've seen some like screenshots i've seen some praise for it and it got my attention just because that's a very interesting title (laughs) so i 
looked a little bit more into it and that's kind of when I started to learn about the Oslo trilogy and that these films were connected in a way. And since I loved Oslo August 31st so much, I was immediately excited to watch this film to check out this whole trilogy itself. So were you excited, Bryant? The film was already on my radar because of the year's best buzz, the best of 2021. But when you told me that it was actually part of the trilogy, I was excited because not only one, did I go back and get to watch or have an excuse to watch August 31st, which I've been wanting to rewatch anyway, uh, coincidentally, but also had a push to go out and watch Reprise. So yeah, I was very excited for this, which I watched all in one sitting. Probably wouldn't recommend doing a whole trilogy. I mean, if you're serious about it, you want to do it, go for it. I think this works well for a a one sitting, but it is a bit rough. And I would also recommend not starting at nine o'clock at night and finishing 345 in the morning. Yeah, I also binged this trilogy in one day when I was watching it for the podcast. And I watched it. uh, I started in the morning. I took a little bit of break in between just to get some stuff done around the house. But I finished it before Brian. And I remember texting Brian like, this is going to be rough. (laughs) This is going to be rough. Uh, uh, Good luck binging these three movies together because when we say melancholy, we, we really do mean melancholy. It's not to say that there isn't joy in these films as well, because I do think there is a lot of joy in these films. But it is a tough one to get through, so I agree. If you are going to watch all of these in a row, definitely be mentally prepared for it. I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think it was that rough for me throughout. It's not like these films are depressing and very heavily emotional throughout them, but they are quiet films and they are very prerogative throughout. So it's, a, it's if anything, you just get mentally exhausted because you're just constantly thinking as these issues are getting brought up. And you're going to find one that you relate to that's going to stick with you. And you're going to be thinking about through the rest of the trilogy or thinking about once you finish it. Yeah, so before we get into our review of The Worst Person in the World, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about those first two films as individuals. And what we thought about them just briefly. So what was your thoughts on Reprise? I like Reprise. It reminded me a lot of Train Spotting, which I believe you haven't seen. So it is a future episode that we're going to be having. It reminded me of Train Spotting both in the themes of life and wanting to be somebody while also having to go against your own vices, which comes out more in Oslo August 31st, but in the first one, also the relation to train spotting. Train spotting also kind of has an unreliable narrator and almost some fantastical, surreal elements to it. This felt like a more grounded version of this, of train spotting. So I wouldn't be surprised if they got some influence from them. But I think that combination of the style and the memories and kind of wondering what which portion is real or if this is going to be revealed not to be real. I like that throughout the film and I like the two friends in the film. They have instant chemistry and seeing how they bounce off of each other and how their lives mirror each other, but go in separate ways. I like that a lot. I think it's a relationship that you don't see a lot of in film, or if you do, you will usually see it in a generic way, such as one's doing really well while the other one's bringing them down. Now they both have their good and bads and they both have uniquely different moments in life. So Reprise as a film follows two friends who are both writers. The two friends are Philippe and Eric. And to be in the film, we see them both submitting manuscripts for their books. And Philippe is the first one to kind of make it big as a writer. He publishes a book that is very successful, but within this time after 
His book is published partly due to a relationship that he's in, partly due to the pressures of being successful as an artist. He goes through a bit of a psychotic break. We never really know his diagnosis, but he is hospitalized, and the film kind of follows him after his hospitalization. He's He's gone out of his treatment, and he's trying to integrate back into the normal world with his friend Eric, who is also just now finally publishing his book and going through that stage of his life where he He's now dealing with the kind of world that Philip already had in the publishing industry. So this movie was, I don't want to say it was amateur because that reflects that it's something bad, but you can definitely tell this was an earlier work and it definitely took a lot of influence from, I noticed a lot of influence from the French New Wave going into this, mostly with the omniscient narrator and kind of the cutaways and even some of the filmmaking itself I've noticed. But the French New Wave is where this omniscient narrator that I've noticed in my film studies, you see this a lot of. And I think that a lot of filmmakers tried to replicate, including Mexican filmmakers uh, like Alfonso Cuaron in Y Tu Mama Tambien. And another favorite film of mine is a film called Gueros, which actually kind of makes fun of it in a way as being, oh, everyone replicates the French. They go to Europe and they learn these European filmmaking techniques and then bring it back to their own country and replicate it there. So I thought it was interesting seeing this kind of narrative structure, but it's a narrative structure that I absolutely love. <laughs> I'm a big fan of French New Wave. I'm a big fan of Itumama Tambien. So, so looking at this film, even though I think that it was trying to be a lot of other different things. I really enjoyed it. I thought this film was amazing and the emotional beats that it, it kind of goes into was very poignant. I agree with you there. It's not amateur, but it is a bit experimental what they're trying. You can tell that it's their first film and not in a bad way. The production, of course, is not all there, but what they have, they work with really well, just like the people of the French New Wave had it. And I think what they did, what they experimented with, I think most of it, if not all of it, worked. Yeah, and it starts to come into a lot of things that you see in his later films in the trilogy as well. At one point, there's an interesting commentary on the sensationalism of madness in artists. And with writing being the profession in all three of these films and kind of exploring into that a bit, there's also very much commentary on art as a subject and artists and what that profession kind of entails. I think another thing that this movie starts, and that is a, a similar theme among the rest of the trilogy, and it came to mind when I was watching that film, there's a character that comes, a female character that comes and hangs out with this group of friends that our main characters are a part of. And this friend group, they're not very easy people to be with. They're kind of difficult people. They're kind of uncouth. They have opinions that are sexist at times, are, are not very empathetic. And a lot of times they're just not very nice to each other within that friend group. The line that this woman says, that this outsider to this friend group says, it can't be easy to have problems in this crowd. And that stood out to me, especially knowing the plot of Oslo, August 31st. These films really center around a person or character who is trying to belong, at times reintegrate into a society that doesn't quite understand them. The difficulty of, of having been through something transformative and getting past something, but then having to go back to the same old people, the same old society, in these unchanging sort of situations. I agree, and I think that the way they explore that too 
because it's not your typical set of deadbeat friends that are just bringing everybody down and you need to get out of the small town to succeed. The way that resolves and the way that continues on is very genuine, like this whole collection of films. So let's go ahead and move on to also August 31st, talking a little bit about these themes here. The main story of also August 31st, I think, as I mentioned before, is a man who is given leave from rehab to go to a job interview. And it just follows his 24-hour period on Oslo 30th, not also August 31st, but Oslo 31st is actually the day after his day that he's given this leave. So we follow him for that whole 24-hour period and to see what he does in that time. So what was your thoughts on Oslo August 31st? Between watching it when you originally watched it versus watching it now as part of this trilogy. So I'll say, again, as we said with these films, these are quiet and simple films. They're between the years of watching these two films. I didn't feel a different way, though I felt the same amount of emotions at the same level that I felt it years ago, which is saying something for the film, because I already knew what was going to happen. It still hit me. The only thing different from watching it then and watching it now is that I understood something in the ending that I didn't pick up on in the beginning and to say so would actually be a spoiler. We'll have to talk about it offline. But yeah, there was something about the ending that I did not know and my brother watching it for the first time, he didn't catch on to it either. Yeah, so like I said, I watched this, you know, it was my second year of college. So I think while I had a lot of emotions and emotional reactions to that film then I think having just lived more life and more experiences with different people going through different things I think this had even a more of an impact for me this time around watching it and also just because it was so long for me since I watched it I, I probably I forgot a lot of elements that went into this film and exactly what happened in this journey like I like I forgot the, all the friends he visits a lot of people and while I remember him and his journey I don't always remember the side character characters that he met during that process so it was interesting getting a refresher on that and seeing kind of the reactions that people had to him versus reactions that the character had after his like, psychotic break in reprise so that was interesting to see yeah now thinking about it i didn't remember the side characters as much as i remember the main character so going back and seeing those yeah it was kind of like a refresher for it and my brother made a good point after watching it of how he would have liked to actually see him continue throughout that day just meeting more characters because he liked a lot of those conversations that he had with those people because this is actually the shortest of the trilogy and actually just a short movie in general. This movie is barely a feature length, only coming in at an hour and 25 minutes. Yeah, I would agree with it. I mean, it definitely was a movie of conversations and the conversations that he's having with people about his addiction and about things that happened in the past and his recollections. And it was interesting. It never dragged. Every conversation was interesting. It kept you entertained. Well, not entertained. Entertained isn't the right word, but it kept you captivated as to what was happening on screen. And I think the conversations are a just an, a, a great example of how to do conversations in film. And this is something I'll say again and again, honest and grounded, because a lot of these conversations, it's not like everybody was going out trying to become the next philosopher they weren't making the great point they weren't it wasn't like when the conversation was finished our character or yourselves had an epiphany conversations they were deep and they weren't that fine like they were a bit messy at times sometimes people said the wrong thing sometimes people just 
were completely blunt or blatant with what they had to say because they couldn't find the words. I love the conversations he has with his friend, the first one that he sees when he gets out, because they're having an honest conversation about his use of drugs. And then they later continue on. And at first you're like, dang, man, this friend is like, it's kind of messed up the way he's talking to him about. But then I have friends like that. We've had conversations where we're just blatant with each other. And it's not like we're having to pull punches or anything, but we don't have to beat around the bush or anything like that. And you can see that they really do care for each other. They go from like, this guy just got out of rehabilitation has, he's still in. And this guy is over there teasing him about his drug use. And then they have this deep conversation about suiciding. He tells me, I don't want you to kill yourself. Like, please stay, stay here. Yeah, that character was interesting to me because you're correct. You definitely had moments where it didn't seem like he knew what to say and he felt himself stumbling but still continued the conversation it wasn't a perfect conversation and i also liked in that conversation too sometimes you had moments of, of levity where he was talking about him and his wife just playing battleship just neglecting their social plans just to stay home and, and play on the playstation and i thought that was you know you needed that you needed that kind of conversation amidst all the suicide and an addiction talk just to kind of give it some light and to make it more realistic. That helps drive home the emotion too because the relatability with it. Oh yeah, definitely. So he was an interesting character in that film as a side character, but of all the films, this is definitely the film for me where Oslo itself played the biggest character in the film itself. I think there's a lot of traveling and walking and, and bicycling through the city that we see in this film that really kind of gave life to it. We also have an opening narration that kind of talks about the character's time in Oslo growing up and what that meant. I actually wanted to know your thoughts on that opening narration because I still kind of don't fully know what to think of it, to be honest. Other than giving that characterization to the city itself. I think it was to give the, like you said, the characterization to the city itself, but also just the a voice to the generations that have been in Oslo. I was reading an article before we started recording in which they talk about that where he went back in the generations and kind of looked at some monumental moments that happened in Oslo and then just some other reasons that people love Oslo and they, they either stay there or they leave. One of the common themes with this trilogy is with time and memories and I think that's what it was doing. It was showing that these are continuing issues. There are continuing issues. Oslo continues to move and it grows just as the people move and grow. Yeah, and I was uh, listening to an interesting interview with the director where he said he never really thought too much about it. He didn't want to be like a sociologist, um, kind of super examining the city life and, and what it is. He kind of just wanted to give a portrait of this place. But it's interesting, in Oslo, August 31st, there's a scene where characters driving into the city and you see construction buildings happening. And so 10 years later, when The Worst Person in the World came out, you see what came out of that construction. <laughs> it's actually where one of the characters in The Worst Person in the World works in that film. So in a cafe where that construction was. So it's interesting that, that these things are captured in this film. And I know that uh, Joachim said that he really just wanted to present Oslo in a way that so many people present New York in ways that you see directors like Spike Lee present New York and several other New York directors. I mean, if you look at, <laughs> I know talking to friends from other countries, if you talk to them, you say, it's always New York, it's always New York. This is the view that we get of America from your movies, that it's always New York. So 
New York is as much of a character in American films as Oslo is in this film. Yeah, and hopefully this trilogy puts Oslo on the map. And we'll start seeing superhero films and action films. Because you know how like when that catastrophe happens, all the like the Eiffel Tower goes down, New York City, Statue of Liberty. Maybe we'll see the Oslo town just have an earthquake corrupt in the middle. But it is interesting to see as an American. Obviously, I've never been to Oslo, but it does seem like a very beautiful city. I know it's a very wealthy city. And it just seems like a beautiful place to visit and place to be based on that depiction in these films, especially in August 31st, especially in that bicycle scene where he's kind of traveling through the city at night. And it's kind of just a whimsical scene. And even though this is a very melancholic movie, you still kind of have that beauty to it. And I think that mirrors the films themselves as well. It does seem to be a quiet city, but there's a lot going on that you either don't see or you're a part of. Because they go back and forth between, there's just these quiet moments like them riding around on the bike, going swimming in a public pool in the early parts of the day, him walking through a quiet field to him attending a party, to attending the cafe shop to meet somebody, to him having lunch with his friend. Yeah, and there uh, is a scene that I really liked, like I said, as someone who isn't from there. It's a scene where main character and a friend of his take two students, two people who are new to this town, to a tourist spot. And it's the echo spot, is what they said. And I didn't get to do too much research on this, but it was interesting because it's just a spot where you stand there and there's an echo, but it's a a construction in the city. And... I don't know. It was interesting to me because I felt like I wasn't actually a tourist in this town and they were showing me this spot. Yeah, I felt that too. Like it wasn't, again, it was just kind of like one of those, it's almost like finding like a mom and pop shop. You know, it's like a little secret of the city. It's not made to be this big whole thing, but it's just a, it's a nice little spot. It's like almost, it's, it's almost like receiving an endearing gift that isn't lavish or expensive. Yeah, I agree. So speaking of those two newcomers to Oslo in that film, one of them is played by Renata Rensu, who is our main character in The Worst Person in the World. So Joachim Trier, he worked with her on this film, and and I guess she really stood out to him as an actress because when it came to Worst Person in the World, this was written for her. This was entirely written for her. She, I was listening to an interview by this actress that... She was talking about how important it was that she liked this script. She said this script was given to her, it was written for her. And so it was so important that she she liked this and connected to the character in The Worst Person in the World. And thankfully she did because we did get quite a movie out of that. So let's go ahead and talk about The Worst Person in the World. Like I said, it's receiving a lot of buzz right now. It'll be curious to see how it does in the Oscar race coming up. I mean, I'm a, I'm pretty certain that it will at least receive a nomination for Best Foreign Film, but I would go to say that this deserves a Best Picture nomination. I still need to finish the year. I know you've seen more than I have at this point. I'm still catching up on a lot of the last year's best, but yeah, maybe I could see this getting Best Picture. Maybe I didn't like this film at all. <gasps> Gasped. Yeah, maybe we'll see. <laughs> No, yeah, I definitely can see this movie getting the Best Picture nomination. And actually, it's funny that you were saying that this actress was came on for this project and it meant a lot to her that this script was written for her because she almost gave up on acting. The day after she said that she was going to give up on acting, the director contacted her and they had 
they were just talking. The script wasn't even in draft form yet. And he started writing after their conversation because she actually wanted to become a carpenter. She did some renovations in her house and she was on her way to become a carpenter and said, yeah, acting's not for me. So I would also be interested to see if she continues from this film or if she goes both routes like the other character in this film, Anders. I say, are they all just like Renaissance men and women in Oslo? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> That's impressive, though. So the worst person in the world follows Julia, the actress in this that Renata plays in this film. It, it's largely centered around her. Like I said, it was written for her. It, it just kind of follows her life. Julia is not a person who really knows what she wants out of life to begin with. This film is split up into 12 chapters, something that we see in, once again, I say the French New Wave films. It's something that was seen in Bivesevi, Jean-Luc Godard film that follows Anna Karina's character, who is who is a very prolific actress. I'll say that. So I think it took some inspiration from those type of films like we saw in his previous films but it follows her life in these 12 chapters and they're broken up very short some of them are shorter some of them are longer but just as she goes through life she changes her mind a lot she's just trying to discover herself it's very much i would say a coming of age film but it follows a woman who's in her late 20s Still just trying to get a grasp on what she wants. Coming of maturity? No, not even maturity, because it's not even that. It's just, I don't know. I think we need to come up with a title for the challenges between the ages of late 20s into your third, like between the late 20s and your 40s, before you even get to that midlife crisis and past that point of where you become of age. Yeah. You know, it kind of starts the film with her going through her college major. She starts off this film as wanting to be a medical student. And from there, she wants to study psychology, and then she changes her major again. She wants to do photography, then she wants to be a writer. So you kind of follow her from the very beginning. She seems like a person who can't make up her mind. And I don't know if you knew many people who were like that, who just can't get a grasp on what they wanted to do and had issues with picking their majors. And But I think we, a lot of us do know people who are like that. I feel like you're trying to provoke me to open up about myself, <laughs> but... Uh... No, it's not going to work. Yeah, I know people like that. And yeah, I've had my own and continue to have my own identity crisis in some fashion. Yeah, and I think we all do. And I know Joachim was talking about how Norway is a rich country is what he was saying and that there's just too many choices living. It seems like first world problems when you talk about it. And I think there's a lot to say about privilege in this film, but there's just so much world available out there and so little time to do it. It actually kind of reminded me a little bit of a book uh, I started to read. I didn't actually finish it. I didn't actually really like it, but a book that came out recently that got a lot of hype was The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. And the main premise of that book is a woman who she just wants to do everything. She wants to do everything. She wants more time. She makes a pact with a demon, basically, to live an immortal life so she can have more time to do what she wants. But this is definitely a very smaller version of that kind of idea. And it's not so much of fantastic elements. There's no demons <laughs> packs in this one. But it still follows that central theme that when you have the privilege to do whatever you want, sometimes that can also be a burden. Like I said... First world problems. <laughs> it is a first world problem. And it may, and I'm only having this thought now as we speak. So it's something that I haven't done too much research on and kind of, 
inspires me to do research on it because I remember reading some t- statistics a couple years back in which actually in the first world countries and countries that are more technologically advanced have a higher suicide rate. So like suicide is almost a first world problem, but it could go into that. There's just a lot of choices and not even just a lot of choices. There's a lot of expectations. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of expectations that have already been set. You have your common expectations when you're going through school. Then you have your own personal expectations and then you have your expectations from your family. Because I mean, as you compare the generations, things at least in society are getting better then the last generation has had it. So the last generation expects you to do better. So that can all be contributing to that identity crisis. And yeah, it sucks, you know, kind of saying it's a first world problem and check your privilege, but it appears to be statistically fruitful. Yeah. And I mean, I know that I related a lot to this film as well. And I know that you said as well in some points but it's hard it is hard you know trying to get your life together and figure out what path you need to take in life when it seems like the world is open to you and you know one expectation that we kind of explore in this film is also the expectation of family and motherhood as a person who is going into her 30s starting into that that life and that time of her life And it actually made me think of a tweet that I saw recently. (laughs) I saw a tweet recently that said being pregnant in your early 30s is weird because your friends all think that you're a child bride, but your gynecologist is saying that you're a geriatric (laughs) mother. (laughs) It's a geriatric pregnancy. But it is weird because the 30s and like the late 20s, early 30s are such a weird time because it's such a strange transition in your life. It's just a strange period of transition where you still feel young. You still feel like you're in your 20s. You still enjoy the same things that were in your 20s. You still have that same mindset. But at the same time, there's this pressure to settle down, to finally just make up your mind what you want and settle down with it. I would say even now it goes a step further and I someone made the comment and I heard the comment before that it affects more of the Generation Z. I was really close to calling them Zoomers just now. <laughs> I'm sorry, Generation Z, one's after millennials, after ourselves, that one of the issues that they're having as well, and this is probably due to social media. I'm not I have nothing against social media. I think it has as good and bad as any technology. But it's also the expectation that you have to succeed by the time that you're 30, which is not correct at all. You don't need to, but there's still that pressure to make it before you're 30. I mean, even pregnancy, you brought up pregnancy throughout the generations. Yeah, having a baby at like 18, early 20s is something that's very common. We both have young parents, but when you think about it, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Yeah, you get to hang out with your kids while you're young, but the mind doesn't really mature till around mid 20s based on your gender and where you're at in life and where you're at in maturity. You're not going to get that till you're almost 30, even past that for some, for not even some, for a lot of people. And I think this movie is more relevant now and it came out at a great time because there is a lot of generational weigh-in and there is just a lot of different expectations coming in from a lot of directions that almost again first world problem the first world is having an identity crisis itself like society is having an identity crisis i feel like especially too 
COVID era, there was this whole period of time where it's like, you're supposed to figure yourself out during quarantine because you have nothing better to do. So you're supposed to, to get productive. You're supposed to get your life together. You're supposed to figure out what you want to do with once you get out of it. And it's been such a prolonged period of time that this pandemic has been happening that I feel like people are getting burned out from thinking about what they want to do, not even even doing what they want to do, just thinking about it. There's just so much been time to think and try new things and discover things that you like that I feel like a lot of us got burned out from that. Yeah, I think we do see this a lot through her character too, because at one point she's dating uh, Anders' character in the film, Axel, and he's a famous comic writer, and she's trying to write more. She wants to pursue this now as her career to be a writer while she's working a side job at her bookstore. But just watching him be productive and watching him be successful is hard for her because she feels like she can't do that. <laughs> yeah, and she has this moment of inspiration where she does write a really good article. And just because, and like her character, just because you get inspired to do something, you do it well, doesn't make you that person. Just because you write something really well doesn't mean that you now have to be a writer. Just because you go out and you have a talent in painting doesn't mean that you have to now go ahead and paint cathedrals. <laughs> but once people see that, they kind of start to push you in that direction as well. They're like, oh, you're so great at it. And now, again, expectations. Oh, crap. Now everybody's expecting me to write the next big thing. It goes back to the first film as well, where they had that expectations of, hey, when's your next book coming out? Not really asking like, hey, how are you doing? How are things going? What are you, do you have any new passions? Are you still liking to write? What's going on? Yeah, is this even the career path you really want to take? Or are you just doing this because you think that's what's right in the moment? Which I would say for Julia, no, that's not the career path she wants to take. We talked a little bit about how we relate to this film and what there is to relate, but what do you actually think of the film itself? What are your overall opinions on this film? Yeah, so like the... First two films, and I'm going to avoid the word, the H word here, because I've already said it a couple hundred times. So I'm going to go with a synonym. This is a very sincere film. Like we kind of just talked about it and almost got sidetracked from actually giving our review for the film. It's a very relatable film that has a lot to say to common issues, whether it's first world or third world, whatever the definition of second world is. It's a romance story that feels genuine, like the romance and the story itself feels genuine. Again, nothing is dramatized or magical other than a couple characters take some shrooms in one scene and things get a little weird. It brings back the style of the first one uh, with a little bit more of a reliable narrator. However, it keeps it grounded like it did with the second one and actually ex explores more than the second one did with its characters. I would also say it has great performances from the lead, Renata, and the supporting and returning actor, Anders, who actually gives his best yet, I believe. I and agree. I was reading about how he wanted to give his best performance. And honestly, from what I've seen so far, I would hope that, I'm not sure how foreign language actors make it into the Academy, but he should really get a best supporting actor nomination. But I'm going to go ahead and call the snub already. Mm -hmm. This is a beautiful introspection on romance, identity, and morality uh, that will guide you through a range of emotion. You'll feel happy, sad, euphoria, joy, maybe get a little depressed when things start hitting hard, but it brings you through it all in life does just in a shorter amount of time. So I enjoyed this film a lot for many reasons. Do you think it met the expectations that you had for it before you watched it? I didn't have any expectations for this film. I didn't even watch a trailer for this film. 
I didn't read the synopsis. I went in completely cold. Like I said, you told me two great things. You're like, I have a reason for you to rewatch Oslo August 31st. And this is a film that ends the trilogy from this director. So I was fully on board. I needed no other reason that and you say you wanted to do it for the podcast so i wasn't going to go against it i wasn't going to watch the trailer be like no so i had no expectations other than that which has been set by the director and i would say that it does live up to what i would expect him to make yeah for me i think being on social media a little bit more than you I i definitely saw a lot from this movie. I didn't ever watch the trailer. I did see a lot of screen caps and I did see a lot of like clips from this film. So I'm not gonna lie, as excited, I was, I had mixed feelings because I was super excited for this film having liked August 31st. But at the same time, I think the more I see online about this, the more I got a little bit nervous. I think one thing with Twitter especially, you kind of see movies that are I'll say the girl bossification of certain movies. And I don't mean that. I think that is a little bit overstating it a little bit. But I I saw this as I mostly, everything I saw about this revolved around this girl who was the worst person in the world and very much praising her. It seemed kind of whimsical, kind of seemed more of a romantic comedy, kind of that girl power, girl bossification type of tweets I think I saw for it. So I kind of got worried. I kind of got worried. It's like, maybe I won't like this as much as the other ones. I think I was afraid of it being a little bit more superficial from the other ones, just based off what I saw. And not because it had a female lead just because of the narrative that was around this online it seemed kind of like oh this is just a quirky tale about this girl and there is quirkiness to it and I don't say that in a derogatory way but there is a lot of depth to this film and it always is a little nervous when you have a male writer or a male director telling a story of womanhood but I think he did it so well I think a lot of these a lot of films that try to try to capture womanhood and coming of age I'll say as a woman they tend to fall into the same tropes and I think I mentioned this before with another film that we talked about recently but this film it really captured a lot of heart and soul I'll say into it it wasn't superficial at all it wasn't quirky it wasn't trying to to give a message about womanhood either that was you know more of a girl power type message. It was just, this is a real person. And she felt like a real person. She felt like a person that I would know. And I really appreciated that. And I think that, you know, he nailed it spot on. And, and writing this for her and knowing that she related so much to it and liked this character and had a special connected to this character as an actress. You know, it does mean a lot, I think, as a woman watching a film like this. I definitely see what you're talking about. That's actually something I had in my notes for when we do our in-depth review is how they portray the woman in this film. And there were a couple other things. And I'll talk, like I said, I'll talk about more in the in-depth because there's a couple of scenes that I think they did really well. Of course, not a woman, never have been. However, I thought this was, from my perspective, seeing you know from both my romantic and platonic relationships with women, this looked to be a, another truthful portrayal. To me. Again, that's from my perspective. So I'm glad to hear that you also agreed on that, though I'm not surprised at all by it. I did have one worry about this film, and that's because all I saw was the poster. And I did hear that this was the film's uh, last year's best. And seeing that it was popular, I mean, it had a wider audience. And seeing the poster, I was a little bit worried that this was probably going to be more 
Hollywood, more studio produced, not really have that indie feel to it, which I would understand if he got a bigger production budget, another production company came in. I can see that and I wouldn't blame him. I was a little worried that, oh, we don't get something like Judd Apatow, who has made some great films and some so-so films, but they do have a certain look, refined look to it. But luckily that was not the case. And actually, I think my doubts were cast away the beginning of this film. It's chapter prologue. What did you think of the chapter structure? I'm indifferent about it. It didn't do anything. It didn't take away anything. I think the chapter names were pretty funny. Actually, I think some chapters did work better than others, while others kind of just told you what was happening and when it could have just been shown, like the epilogue and the prologue. However, there was some like chapter two cheating, and now you have that expectation of who's cheating, how are they cheating, is this about to happen, has it happened, is it getting set up? And are they going to subvert expectations? Are they going to go with it? So that kind of creates a little bit of suspense. And I did like that. And then chapter three has a very interesting title (laughs) as well. It did work. Some of them did work. Others, I was like, all right, it's there. It doesn't take me away. And I mentioned show and tell. And that's something that I forgot to mention as well about all three of these films. That's something this director does very well is showing things and having them tell the story or the message, or dialogue that hasn't been spoken. You can understand a lot about characters and feelings and what they're trying to depict without actually having to hear anything. Yeah, I agree. And going back to that cheating chapter title, I think that one was my favorite too, because it did create a lot of suspense. And you think you know that where the story is going to go, and it really does change your expectation you know you do have a lot of expectation and it goes in a direction that's you wouldn't expect at all i think i wouldn't have expected it (laughs) so it's very interesting i think the titles do add a lot but i do think that title and then the third one definitely have the most memorable chapter titles some of them not so much i wonder if that was done on purpose like if this is a meta thing by telling us the chapter title about a story of expectations we then grew our own expectation on the film thus applying pressure to this poor movie com- i'm gonna i'm gonna get my i'm gonna get the the old what is it the tech board i'm gonna get the tech board <laughs> up start connecting dots yeah, there we go start connecting all the dots I would be interested in going back and watching it again and seeing the chapter titles with knowing what's going to happen already and see what how I think from there. Honestly, I can only remember the first couple titles. I can't even remember the other ones. Though as soon as I hear it, and that's probably a good thing too, is if you're talking about the film and you or you're reading about the film and you hear that chapter title, you remember a, a portion of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really did like it as a series of vignettes. It's kind of hard to tell how much time actually passes for this film, especially uh, towards the middle point. There's some stuff that happens, some life changes that happens in her life. It's hard to tell just how long time passed because it kind of just jumps from scene to scene without going into that too much. Yeah, they do, again, with the show and don't tell because you don't always need to put the date up on the screen for you to understand what time has passed. But there are some indications of at least what time of year it is or how many months had passed between these two points. Something the first one did very well. The second one did great as well because it only took place in two days and they <laughs> gave you one day. In the- <laughs> what did you think about this film visually? Visually, it looked great. Obviously, they received the greater budget for this movie and they definitely 
apply it. There's some things they do as well, some of the shots and some of the techniques that they use as well apply to the visuals. And I think this is a great looking film. I'm not even just talking about just looking at it. I'm just talking about how the scenes, the way they set the scenes up. Yeah, I think as far as camera work, I think there's some scenes, some tracking shots that I think were very well done, especially in one particular scene that we'll talk about a little bit more in our spoiler section. But just the camera work during the dialogue sections, I think were interesting. It knew when to hold on to a shot and it knew when to change. Very well done. It, it really keeps you engaged in the dialogue and it's something that he does well in all of his films that I've noticed. And also something he does in all of his films is sometimes the camera will linger on a person and they're not speaking they're just kind of absorbing or listening or doing something else in the scene but overlaid is their dialogue from the upcoming scene just a little bit but it adds some confusion i think to the scenes but in a very interesting way and a very i don't want to say it's artistic but it also adds to the overall mood and theme of just kind of this feeling of being lost <laughs> in the film and kind of this weird sense of time that that is felt in these movies. Is that something that you noticed as well? Oh, I did notice that. And I thought that was cool, though I couldn't. Yeah, I would have to think about it more as what it actually applied to the film and its theme. It was a an eccentric choice that I agree with. It was like I said, this brought back the style of the first one. And it's something that just keeps the movie it's kind of like the French New Wave of how they wanted to remind you that you were watching a movie. Mm -hmm. For some reason, sometimes being reminded that you are watching a movie, that you are watching somebody else's life, it makes it more interesting. It adds art and life to it. I definitely think it takes a very skilled director to accomplish that, though. Just by the amount that you do it. If you overdo it, you have style over substance. If you underutilize, if you underutilize it, then it's just oddly placed. I think another camera movement that was super memorable to me was that shroom scene. We mentioned earlier that a couple of our characters do do shrooms in this film. Almost got sick during that scene. <laughs> Not because of the visuals, and we'll talk about the visuals in that scene a little bit, but because of the camera movement, when she first starts to feel the effects of the shrooms, there's just a very, very slight and slow camera wobble. I, it made me almost sick. Just that one small camera movement. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling this. <laughs> I agree. When I saw that, I was like, Ugh. maybe because I have vertigo. Like, I'm like, uh, how far is it going to take it? Please don't take it. Yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, also, that it continues with that too. At first, I thought you were talking about when she falls backwards, which also had me a little bit worried. I was like, did she just hit her head on the kitchen floor? Because what she does is she falls backwards onto a rug in a black void and if that doesn't make any sense to you then well i guess that's what happens when you take shrooms <laughs> and that's a it's a trailer moment i think a lot of eclipse and stuff i've seen to this film have have highlighted that particular snapshot of her falling into the rug but yeah before that i can see it's a great shot it is a great shot i understand it is a trailer worthy shot i get it <laughs> and i think again that's where the movie makes a grounded approach because it is a like slight movement. It's not like the camera is spinning all the way around. Uh, there aren't a bunch of colors. Things aren't getting psychedelic. It's, it's almost like if you've been drinking and you finally feel that buzz or it, if you make the mistake of taking a, a bunch of shots in a couple seconds and then you feel it, it is that slight, eh, 
that slight turn, like the world just shifts a little bit. Just a little. And you as a viewer, you just know like, yeah, it just, she's done. <laughs> it's all over from here. <laughs> so is there anything else you want to note about this film before we get into our spoiler discussion? No, no. I think, yeah, I think we said a lot about the film. And at this point, all that's left really are the spoilers. And when I say all that's left are the spoilers, I don't mean that we taken a great deal of this movie and already explained it to you. There's still a lot of this film. And like we said, a lot of it comes from the conversations that these characters have, uh, which are great conversation pieces. And we haven't mentioned any of the dialogue that comes from them. And that in itself is enjoyment throughout the film. Yeah, I think there's a lot of emotional weight to the second half of this film that we can't really get into without spoiling too much but uh, there is a lot of heavy emotions in this film like i said this trilogy in general it has a sense of melancholy throughout it feels real the the life that this character is living feels so real and the problems that she faces feel so real so if you haven't had a chance to watch this yet i, I recommend you to go see this it is in theaters right now, playing this February. I'm not sure how long it's going to be in theaters, as it is a foreign film. Probably not going to get as many showtimes for this film as you would, like, Spider-Man. <laughs> but see it while you can. I definitely recommend it. I highly recommend this movie. And go with it with an open mind. Maybe find a friend to hug afterwards. As we get into our spoiler discussion, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about our opinions about this film, some of those more emotional moments. Uh, we're also going into whether we felt this was needed in this trilogy, where it kind of ranked in this film, as well as our letter grade for this film. So let's uh, let's go ahead and get into our classified section. So like I said, go watch this film. If you haven't seen this, you don't want to be spoiled, pause the podcast, go watch the film, and come back to us later and join us in our discussion. Let's talk a little bit more about Anders' character, because I know you said that this was his best performance, and... Towards the end of this film, now that we can talk a little bit about the spoilers, this truly is an iconic relationship that she has with this character. He's a writer. She meets him after changing his ma her major for maybe the fourth time, maybe. And she falls in love with him. And I think our first introduction to him as a character was so good because they just kind of meet, they hook up, and they have every intention of just leaving each other about letting this, just letting this be a, a one-night stand. He kind of gives her a good excuse about why they should just stop this relationship now like kind of like i'm only gonna break you heart so there's no point in falling in love and because it's gonna end badly kind of just the normal excuses you kind of give someone that you don't really want to start anything you're just looking for a good time and the film says the narrator says that that was the moment she fell in love with him so it was such a great moment to start a romance i would say it subverse expectations in two ways one we have seen this moment in film a lot of times where they say goodbye, but they realize the mistake that they made or they're going to get on that Greyhound bus. I don't even know Greyhound buses are still a thing. They go to the airport. They realize they made a great mistake. They turn around. They hug. They embrace each other. They're kissed. Next time we see them, they're around the Christmas tree with two children and the movie ends. 
this does it. I think this is the prologue. Like this, this happens right in the beginning of the film. So it brings up that, well, once two people have declared that they love each other, how does that continue on forth? You can't just live happily ever after. That doesn't happen. Also, later on the film, you kind of forget about, or at least I forgot about what kind of guy Anders seemed at first. Yeah, he was, he was given that one night stand speech. Look, man, I'm really just not the greatest person for you. You're young. You're talented. You can do much better than me. So I think it'd be best, you know, I'm just going to go. Don't, don't worry. Well, I didn't even give you my number. Don't worry about it. But then we learn throughout the film. No, that was Anders actually giving an honest speech. And he actually meant what he was saying. And what he was saying was actually, he was actually looking out for her best interests. I don't know if you felt the same way with Anders or you thought that he really was throughout the whole film. He was just trying to do a one night stand and looking a way to get out of it. I think his character is interesting because you get this vibe that he's a little sexist. <laughs> Both through his writings as a comic, there's also an interview that happens with him about his books later on where there's a heated discussion about his feminism and his controversial topics that are in his comic books and even the main character when she first meets him she says that uh, the only thing that she knew about her his comics was that there was one that she thought was vaguely sexist so he's not a perfect person at all did i still love him in this film absolutely but he's such a real character and a real character in the world of 2021 that There's such honesty to him. I agree. I mean, what he's saying, I still think it was his speech of trying to get out of the one night stand, but everything he says, there is sort of a a sense of honesty to it. And I think that really reflects him as a character. I think too, is a commentary on social media and headline reading, because if you were to see this guy, if this was your first time listening to an interview or that's all you ever seen are interviews. And you were to see that, you would think that he's an awful person. He is a sexist. The interview does not go well for him at all. But his time with Julia listening to him talk, I don't think he is a sexist person. Mm-hmm. Maybe he just doesn't have the right words to describe. He definitely has some old-fashioned beliefs, but he's not a bad person. He's not a sexist. He's not a misogynist, but that's something that happens a lot in our society from both sides as well. Yeah, you may think he's the worst person in the world looking at that interview as a, a critic in society in that world that the film takes place in, which is our world, of course. But if he were a real artist if he was a real writer these are the kind of reactions that he would be getting but listening to him speak he seems like a person who in a way is just as lost as any of us and is trying to convey his feelings and just not doing it well (laughs) and i think there's a sort of struggle there that that you can appreciate that he has good intentions but it just doesn't come off the right way (laughs) No, not at all. I think this director, like I said in the first one, he kind of talked about the sensationalism of madness and artists and reprise. So he always has something to say about writing and artistry as a profession. And I enjoy that. I did too. I, I really do like what he's saying about artists and how he portrays his characters that are artists throughout this entire trilogy. And especially in this one as well. I think the character too with his age, he has some of the best conversations because he's the most candid. And I think that is because of his his age. He's not trying to be poetic, which they actually say in the first film, uh, Reprise, where Eric's character meets the author that he loved, who tells him that his ending was a bit poetic. 
the ending doesn't always need to be poetic. And I think Anders understands that. And yeah, when he's talking, he's very straightforward to where it almost makes you mad at a certain point, but then you see that he's just he's just a candid person. And yeah, you can make it sound better. It's not going to change the meaning. So this up almost up to perspective. So we talked a little bit about the the second chapter of this film was called Cheating. At this point in the film, Anders' character and Julia are in a relationship together. They've moved in together. They're living their life together. And then, bam, you get this title. And you do get concerned. There is that element of suspense in there. So what happens is that she goes to a wedding. She crashes a wedding. She left uh, an event that was for Axel and goes and just crashes a wedding that she happened to watch by and it's kind of an intimate setting too it's it's an intimate party almost and she just crashes it and there she she meets a guy i'm blanking on his name in the film but she meets this this man that she starts a connection with that she spends the night with not sexually but an intimate night and it becomes kind of a joke in the film it's like how intimate can we be with each other before it's considered cheating because we can't cheat the character he himself is married so he's also aware of the fact that but there's a line somewhere that you shouldn't cross <laughs> but they're kind of pushing the boundaries of of what is too intimate before it's cheating and you see kind of a series of kind of silly unrealistic things that these characters do at one point they smell each other's armpits they watch each other pee and it's very weird and it was it was a little off-putting at first but then the more I thought about it I was like this is kind of interesting this is a very interesting conversation because at what point is it pushing it at what point does it become cheating honestly I thought they were going to continue on pushing that boundary oh it's kissing you on the forehead cheating it's kissing you on the nose and then you know they're finally going to make out but no they go through some acts and yeah, they're very strange, <laughs> very strange from smelling armpits to peeing in front of each other, which I think they answer the question, what is considered cheating? And I think cheating is almost is not the actual action. It's the emotion that you have to the actions, because I don't think I would be comfortable. I'm not at all a jealous person. Actually, I've had people have issues with me not getting jealous or looking at certain situations, putting myself in certain situations because I don't, to me, there's nothing romantic about it. To me, there's no type of lust or anything to the actions or the situation. But even in this, if my partner was doing this, (laughs) I would have some issues because to me, it's like, okay, you didn't do the action, but did you want to? How much emotional attachment do you have to this individual? You know, watching this for me, I think that whole situation just frustrated me so much for multiple reasons. I think this is a sequence where I was just mad at Yulia as a character. I was just so angry at her as a character in this scene. And I'm like, what is she doing? What are you doing? And I think it's okay to feel that way. I think that her interactions with this character, her relationship with this character was, I don't think it had anything to do with him as a person. (laughs) I think it was just her way of trying to see what she wanted. I think she just went out of that relationship she had with Anders' character in the film at that point. And she just needed something to push her. She needed to find and create a reason to leave that situation and she needed to to figure stuff out. I never really got the vibe that she truly, truly cared for him. And I think some might disagree with me on that. But I just think she just wanted the thrill. I think she just wanted to feel something. And this is why she acted this way and did these things. 
It just frustrated me because Anders in this film, Anders Danielson Lee, I think this is the best he's looked the whole trilogy. You know, he kind of grew his hair out a little bit, got a little bit of stubble. He was looking good. I mean, he still looks like a normal dude, a guy you would just meet anywhere. And that's kind of the difference between some foreign films and some American films. He's not like the glorified, macho, muscular love interest. But he was looking good, and I've seen another film with him earlier this year. It was Bergman Island that came out in 2021 as well. And, you know, he just looks like a normal dude, but he did look attractive in this film. And then the guy that she meets at his party is just so goofy looking to me. You know, he lacks the sophistication that Axel's character has. He's kind of more simple-minded in a way, but he just kind of has this goofy, kind of funny look to him. And he just kind of had a goofy look to him most of the film. He kind of just looked surprised that this girl was even giving him any attention through most of the party. So I was just like, oh my gosh, what is she doing right now? Why is she doing this? I was just very upset with her most of that sequence. I think she went to the party because she wanted to feel something. And she was gravitated towards this guy because he was, again, something she was not used to. So personality-wise, he's an attractive person. He's sophisticated. He's intelligent. For the most part, he seems to be on track and structured. And he's also successful. I think with her also crashing this party, man, party crashing, it didn't look that great. If anything, when she went to crash this party, it looked self-destructive. That's the first thing I thought. I was like, man, that's... And when she started getting more drinks and drinks, it's like, okay, now you're just being... Yeah, you're just taking unnecessary risk. There's also the scene where they're just laying on everyone's coats in the bedroom, <laughs> in the coat room, and they're just laying sprawled out across people's coats and you see people come in and out and they're like, uh, I need to get my coat, please. <laughs> I'm like, these two people are people who should have been cut off. Like, they just keep drinking and drinking and I'm just like, oh my gosh. It, it was a train wreck. It, it really did feel like a train wreck when I was watching, but it, it definitely kept my attention as train wrecks do. And with him also, the when he shows up in his normal clothing because we're introduced to him in a, it's either a tuxedo or a suit and tie. He's in formal wear. But I remember seeing him out and about. <laughs> what are you wearing? Like he had this very just, he was wearing some cargo shorts, this oversized button up lazily over this t-shirt. Yeah, it subverts the rom-com expectations. Which, did you get that from an article? Because I actually read an article where the director was saying that this is kind of the rom-com for people who hate rom-coms. Uh, I don't think I saw that article, but I've been seeing it described as a rom-com almost in a lot of a lot of articles being connected with that genre. Yeah, this movie is mm -hmm. a bit of a rom-com, but we don't really see it like that because it doesn't have any of those tropes that honestly you can call us pretentious or what, but I think we agree a lot of those tropes we are not fans of. Mm -hmm. And honestly, is the reason why we think so much of this is great because they go, not because they just are, they're opposing, but because this is how things actually normally turn out in real life. And I have nothing against rom-coms. I enjoy rom-coms, but it's a different... You have to go up to it with a different mindset. And I think coming after two very emotional films in this trilogy, when I saw it being described as a rom-com, like I said, that was where part of that hesitation came in. I was like, uh, is this going to be completely different? Is this going to be a lot more? <laughs> Not that I wanted a sad movie. I didn't want a sad movie, but there's sort of a superficialness to rom-coms that I was a little bit afraid of before I watched this. And I don't dislike rom-coms. There's not many rom-coms that I do like, but yeah, there are some issues I have with them. They are a bit superficial. And again, I understand why people do 
like those films. I'm not knocking them because yeah, this isn't as probably this is not as fun as the rom coms we're used to seeing. With this cheating scene as well, and again, expectations. Need to find a synonym for that. The title of the movie, Worst Person of the World. I was waiting for the moment to think of this character as the worst person in the world. So when I saw the chapter cheating, I was like, all right, here we go. She's gonna become the worst person in the world. But no. And actually, I don't think at any point in this movie is she the worst person in the world. What I think it actually is, is the feeling of being the worst person in the world. Thinking that you are the worst person in the world. Because I think a lot of people feel that way, that they make bad decisions or they don't make the right decisions and therefore they're the worst person in the world. But as we see with this character, she never says that she thinks of herself as the worst person in the world, but I wouldn't be surprised if she felt that way at any point. But watching her, we would never think that about her. So why does she think about herself like that? Well, why does anybody think about themselves like that if they're just making mistakes that aren't having a catastrophic impact or they're making honest mistakes, they're not out there causing harm to other individuals. They're just trying their best and they don't succeed to a certain standard that doesn't make them a bad person. What did you think about the title? Yeah, I agree completely. Like I said, I think there's a lot of relatability in her as a character. And in that scene, like I said, I was she made me angry, that chapter. But I didn't ever dislike her as a character as much as she frustrated me. And I think it was okay. I think that that frustration didn't take away from her as a character, just made her more real. And I think there are times that we feel frustrated with ourselves, that we feel frustrated with our friends. We don't necessarily need to see them or ourselves as the worst person in the world. It's just sometimes people frustrate you and, and that's just how life is. Yeah, we've been having some really good titles. Yeah, Grave of the Fireflies, There Will Be Blood. So it goes to show that there's a lot in your title that can send its own message or do some foreshadowing or create some expectations or even suspense in the film at this at for instance this one and there will be blood i think it sets a certain suspense because as we're watching these chapters we're watch we're or at least i was waiting for the chapter that makes her the worst person but nothing does i don't even think anything comes close i was never even upset with her you know aside from her crashing a party and maybe she does make up a couple other honest mistakes but this isn't something where I, at any time, thought she was an awful individual. And speaking of her, the performance of Renata and the character herself, she's a very joyful character to watch. I had a fun time watching her. She has a complex personality, or not even a complex personality. She has a expanded personality. She has her own ambitions, her own type of humor, her way of going about things, the way she imagines things, such as the scene where everything is frozen and she runs out there which I love that scene, by the way. That scene was amazing visually. Yeah, I wanted to get into that scene and the way you're talking, I figured you were going there. And that's something that I, I'm going to take a lot from these movies and apply them to my own writing. But that's something that I have, that I keep in mind when I'm writing characters is that I want people to understand why someone will become a friend or a lover of this individual or hate them. Whatever it is that I need to have between the characters, the chemistry. Well, not even just the chemistry, but just the characters themselves. Understand why they love each other and understand why you may fall in love or hate the person or befriend the individual. And I think both of these characters are somebody that, yeah, I can definitely understand why people would be attracted to them. I can understand why people would be repelled from them. 
they are complex individuals just like individuals are. It's almost like these characters were written to where they have another book about their own backstory and their own upbringing and everything that was applied to this film, but never actually written out. You can draw your own conclusions about her upbringing uh, from what is shown, especially with her relationship with her father, but it's never spelled out for you. But you do get a sense that this person has lived a whole life before we even saw her. And I think that's what makes a good slice of life is that but you can imagine it. But these are complex characters of complex lives and you're just seeing a little bit of piece of it. And that little bit of piece is, is so rewarding and more rewarding for that. Going back to the, the scene with the frozen in time, that was also probably my one of my favorite scenes in the film. Even though it made me mad that she went to the, the cafe to meet, oh gosh, what is his name? I need to look it up. Because Ivand, I think. I think Ivand is the character's name. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, I apologize. But if we're pronouncing any of these names wrong, let us know. I apologize. <laughs> but yeah, so as much as she made me mad that she was going to meet him in this cafe, the whole surrealism of it just was captivating to me. I think it was well shot. I think it was well performed. I, I think the emotions that are on her face, he just sells so much with those emotions. And it's just so whimsical and, and magical. I think this director does an excellent job of meshing the surreal with the real. As a fan of a magical realism, seeing a scene like that, like that's beautiful for me to, to see. And there's also kind of that question too, is did this even really happen? Is this an all in her mind? Is Did this happen at a different time? Does she really love this guy? I kind of saw some people saying, oh, this is the beautiful romantic comedy moment but I didn't even see it as that I didn't even see this as a beautiful romance moment I just saw it as a beautiful moment for her and also heartbreaking for what it leads to but it was just a magical moment that this director provided for us what were your thoughts a little bit more on that scene I agree with you I like that blending of magical realism surrealism there's not many films that do it so I'm always excited to see it because I think I've seen most films that have done it well throughout the movie I think it fits great in here I think it's another point in which you're looking into her mind like I said she's more of a reliable narrator in this one but of course this kind of sets it up like yeah of course this is not real this is her just off daydreaming and I don't know what it was with the editing and I'm not an expert on editing so there's a lot of techniques that I don't know I mean I edit this show but it's not on that level the way she clicks that light switch the sound it makes the way everything stops and lights up was done flawlessly like it was so seamless it was great they take that surrealism and they put it into some other scenes as well probably not as magical the drug scene is more of a horror picture than this magical moment I feel like, too, this is the moment in the film where you just kind of realize that all this character really wants is just to be happy. And that's what we all want, and I don't necessarily agree with the decisions that she makes, but I can't fault her for wanting that and wanting to seek that in whatever way she thinks that she can. I think this is the one scene that you see, but this could be how her mind actually works and why she's always going off in different directions. Because this probably isn't what's going to make her happy, but she is always looking for that thing that's going to make her happy. So this is probably how her mind works when she was switching majors. Time stops. She runs out from being a doctor and then becomes a famous photographer. Time stops and she's with Anders. Time stops and she's seeing herself with a family. That could be how her daydreams work. We keep just calling him Anders because I think this actor 
is such a having seen him in three films now that's that's just how we know him as but his name is axel in in the movie we're on a first but, name basis yeah we'll probably just keep <laughs> calling him anders that was definitely a favorite moment in the film for me and honestly the scene that comes after the breakup scene was also such a significant moment in this film and i remember getting pretty emotional in that scene myself just because there was such a sense of realism to it and there's such a sense of sadness for leaving something behind that you once wanted i think it's probably one of the most realistic breakups i've seen in a film there's times when these characters are are crying they're sad and then the next moment they're laughing and they're reminiscing and it's then they're having sex and there's just this back and forth between all this different stuff that is going through their minds in this conversation that they're having as they're breaking up it was hard to watch honestly because you had to sense that these characters wanted each other so bad but it just wasn't right and it was heartbreaking to see i'm glad you brought up the breakup scene Because I think that's probably the most sincere scene in this movie, next to when Anders is describing how he wants to continue to live. But this breakup scene is such an important scene to this movie, of course. And I love, yeah, what you said. They're just, they're going through all types of emotions and their words almost can't keep up with what they're saying. And they're bouncing back and forth in their own dialogue a lot of times in movies they're on one set path it all leads to that point with them walking out the door well they walk out the door they come back they're in different seating positions different parts of the house it's a long and painful conversation it's a lot of I don't want to go but I have to go and you just see that that back and forth with them and what I liked also with this is that no one is the bad guy in this situation so you can't it's not like you have to root with somebody. In other films, Anders would have easily have been the bad guy. Or he would have said something in that conversation that would have made her blow up and leave. Or you you would have understand why she left. Like him saying, you're just like your mother or you're never going to accept yourself in life. They're both speaking off the top of their head and what they're thinking and trying to pull sense to this while still loving each other and being honest with each other. And they even tell each other, he says, I, I'm sorry for what I said. And she tells him, well, I said things too. So they're not even holding that against each other. And something that I read that was great in this film, something I read in an article, is that these two people are two people that love each other, but aren't great partners, unfortunately. And you can tell that they still love each other throughout the film. And I like that. I like that a lot because it wasn't like, oh, they're going to get back with each other. No, it's just that they still have a connection, even if they're not going to stay with each other. Something in this scene as well that I think was a good example for something that happens a couple times in this film. If you don't mind me transitioning out of the breakup scene, if you had anything else to say. There was a women's gaze in this film that we usually don't see. And I'm not trying to be the social justice warrior or the the feminist, but she makes a point in the beginning of the film in the first chapter where she's talking about how she knows everything about men, all the all the seekers of their anatomy, all the crudeness and things. But men don't know that about women because it's almost taboo in movies and entertainment to talk about their periods, to talk about the things that they go through as well, their orgasms and things like that. Everybody knows everything about men because that's accepted. During the breakup scene, when they start having sex, you don't even see him having sex with her. You see him performing oral sex upon her in a way that 
again, is would be more appealing to a woman. At least that's what I saw. Again, you'd probably be able to tell me if that's true or not better. Even when they depart after sex, he doesn't have his pants on. He's kind of just Donald <laughs> ducking it in the living room. <laughs> and his penis is just out. There's The article was talking about that as well. One, showing the vulnerability of him in that state, showing his nakedness, feeling his feelings and everything during the breakup, but also showing a woman's gaze because Anders, again, is not a bad looking guy. But a lot of times in film, you know, we've seen plenty of female nudity. We don't see a lot of male nudity. I thought during the intercourse scene between her and Ivan as well, the way it was filmed more from a woman's perspective. It wasn't done in the traditional sense that as that we usually see. Again, kind of focusing more on that female gaze. And then even more so when she takes the shrooms and she takes out her tampon and throws it at her father, but also taking the period blood and then putting it on her like war paint. Something that most films, aside from the French, would that they would try to avoid. Did you notice that as well? Was there actual, you'll be able to tell me, was the gaze there for you? Not when he was just stand there half naked. That was just funny. That was a funny scene to end on. And I think we needed that kind of levity in that situation. But as far as the oral sex, I didn't, I actually didn't think of it being a female gaze thing. But I think that we do in this film have a lot of conversations about, you know, feminism and the female experience as far as oral sex goes. I mean, we saw it with her. Her article and I think it, it is interesting a point that it tries to make and like I said especially written by a male uh, writer and a male director that no I didn't actually think of it that way but it makes that point several times. I don't know if female gaze is exactly the right terminology but it does give what someone might consider a female perspective especially with her article. You know I'm gonna try to keep this rated PG-13 for the podcast the way her article treats oral sex and the way she talks about oral sex, there's very much a power dynamic in it that is favored towards the female. And that's not something that you see as the norm or something that you see very often, never in film or just generally speaking. It's more than just the physical act, it's also the things that go through a woman's head during these acts that it addresses. And when I say the female gaze, I just want to talk out to my male audience real quick even though the female audience is actually right now a majority male audience just because i said the female gaze is him half naked in the living room do not send photos of yourself porky piggin in the middle of your house (laughs) please don't but i think whether the female gaze is there or not i think that was the intention as well one because they said it in the article but two if they could get away with it and they cannot And honestly, this kind of furthers the point. You can't show a male erection in movies. I think if you could, without getting the NC-17 or X rating, I think if they could, they would have done that. But also, she makes a point in the film to say that she likes the penis when it's flaccid. And during that sex with Ivan, whether the women's gaze was there or not, I would say the male's gaze was not there. Because the way the camera's positioned, one, it shows the point of her underneath him And you see more of Ivan over top of her. And then you see her grabbing onto his buttocks. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know what you're saying, but you know, like when you, when 
Yeah, that's true. I see what you're saying. Usually in pornography, the woman's body is more of a focus rather than the man's. So focusing on his backside instead of showing off her body, it could be a commentary on that. But I feel like female gaze is not really the word for me in this instance. You know, I didn't really find this scene attractive. And I think the idea of the female gaze is that it's from a woman's perspective and what they see and I don't want to say objectify, but their perspective. I mean, of course I can't speak for all women, but I didn't feel this was something that was representative of my personal case as a female. But I do see your point though, that the kind of switching of what we normally see can be considered feminist. Yeah, And I will say it's not just pornography that of course focuses on women it's movies as well usually the sex scenes that you see in movies you will see the guy above the girl i'm trying to figure out how to describe this and you you basically you see her lying down and you see her breasts and you see her face or the guy is behind and you either see the woman's backside or you see the front of the woman and women's gaze male gaze i think doesn't always mean like the attractive direction it can also just mean the perspective this was shot in the woman's perspective i believe and those other scenes are made in the male's perspective whether that be the the fantasized perspective the attractive perspective or just the literal perspective but either way this movie does something different most definitely and i i'm always glad to see people do new techniques and especially representation as well so kind of segueing off of that let's talk a little bit about this new relationship that she gets into and this is where the passage of time is a little bit confusing to me just because we see her in one scene kind of breaking up with axel and then almost immediately she's moving in with this new guy but there's it's implied that there's a bit of a passage of time i mean this man was married so at one point he separated from his wife and you kind of hear a little bit more about their story and why he is not feeling how he wants to feel in his relationship there but it just kind of jumps to them moving in together and starting starting this new life together. So what was your thoughts on that? I think I could be wrong, but a passage of time was sort of insinuated by her Instagram post. I think they were talking about like how many months had passed or something like that. But again, I I don't think the passage of time is necessarily too important in this moment of her life and Andra's life, who is still relevant at this point, which is interesting because he's still relevant of course, in her life. So he's still relevant to the movie. Her relationship with him, I think, was another step in her life. It was another thing that she had to experience, whether it was everlasting or if it was just something to move her forward. I like what their relationship brought. I thought that brought a lot of points in which she still needed to come through in her early life, even though she believed her life was still not early. Because at this point, she just turned 30. But her life, there's still things that need to be experienced. Yeah, and it was a relationship that was so different than her relationship with Axel. I mean, at one point, she kind of gets mad at him, Ivan, and says he's reading some writings that she threw away. And she kind of gets mad at him. I was like, when was the last time you even read a book? Like, what would you even know about this? He's more of a simple man. And it doesn't mean that he's unintelligent or anything, but... The kind of way of going about things is so different than Axel. The kind of person that he is is just very, very different. And so I think that she did, I agree, that she just something that she had to do. It was a learning experience, I think, for her. 
and kind of determining what she wants and what's good for her as a person. So, I mean, as much as I didn't really like these characters, seeing them together and living together like this, uh, I do think it was necessary for her and I can understand where she was coming from and entering this relationship. And it was kind of foreshadowed by Axel as well, because he says something very blatant and candid and it's almost arrogant as he says it. But again, it's that thing. I was like, I meant switch off. I see what you're saying. Because he tells her, he's like, you're going to have a lot of relationships and you're going to see that this was the best one. And I think she did believe him in some sense, but she still had to go out and try. And Axel Anders could have been, could have been right. But again, it's just something that we have to go out in life and make whatever decision that we think is right or we just have the desire to make. I think even the fact that she responds to that, you know, maybe we'll get together, back together one day. And she kind of, I think in her mind, she truly believes that. I don't think she's keeping him on her hook or anything like that. Because I think my first reaction was like, well, that's kind of mean. <laughs> you're going to keep him on your hook. You're going to keep him from moving on with his promise that you're going to get back together. But I don't think that she meant it that way. I think she was sincere with it. I think there was a large part of it that really just believed that, that maybe they would end up back together one day. Did you, this is sort of random, did you notice the glass of water throughout the trilogy? No. Are you saying it's because I'm drinking water? No, no. I, I literally, it's the last <laughs> note I have for the in-depth. Tell me about your the glass of water because I don't think I noticed that. To me, it was, it just stood out to me. I don't know what it was about, but while Philip is having his psychosis breakdown or his psychosis and reprise he's getting a glass of water that's when he comes in and he's seeing his girlfriend at the time and she can tell that he's not right he's getting a glass of water and for some reason that just stood out to me and then the final scene or the second to final scene in august 31st he again gets a glass of water all from the sink as well as all tap water during the breakup scene again he's getting a glass of water from the tap it's all in a glass cup it's clear i think it could stand for a couple things maybe it's just maybe it's nothing it stood out to me and they were at pivotal points during those movies mm -hmm. what do you think it could mean like just off the top of your head without spoiling too much i think it could be his attempt to gain clarity the clarity of the water water being pure water also symbolizes rebirth or being born again in film, but that's usually done when someone takes a dive into water, such as being baptized. So I think it could be him trying to gain clarity during a situation because during all three times of those three times that it happens in the trilogy, he is going through a lot mentally. And I think even in this one, like he kind of, he takes the water, he doesn't drink it, or at least he doesn't drink the second glass. He tosses it out and he just starts speaking his mind. So it may be I don't want to wait for my mind to become clear. I want to talk now. And that's where we get that messy and truthful dialogue. Yeah, that's something I'll have to keep in mind the next time I, I watch this series. I remember those moments now that you're you're talking about it, but I didn't notice it in the moment. But if it happens all three, it seems like such a in such pivotal moments. I mean, it can't be just a coincidence. So I'm curious of what was going through the director's mind when he put that in there. Yeah, maybe we'll have to... Reach out to him. I know we have a Norwegian audience member. Maybe he's got the connection. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe. it's him. Oh, gosh. If you're listening, tell us about the water, please. <laughs> also, kudos. <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> so speaking about Axel a little bit more. Well, before we get into that, there's a couple of things that, that happen while she's in the relationship with Ivan. Like I said, I apologize if I've been pronouncing this name wrong. But first was, was the shroom scene. <laughs> and what a scene. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, you talked about a little bit with the throwing of the tampon at the father and using it as war paint. But there's also a moment you see her having an elderly body, but I think goes along with her fear of aging and not accomplishing what she wants to accomplish in the little time that she has on earth and as a young person. You see her nursing a child. You see some wild cartoon characters with with the starfish (laughs) kind of coming out and coming out. It's a very, it's horrific. Horrific was a word you used earlier and it was, that's for sure. I thought it was hilarious, especially the the tampon scene using a war fight. That for me, I think just, just took the cake for me. That alone just... I was cracking up. I actually watched this. My mother had Humkai and she watched the first part of this movie. She didn't get to finish it because she had to go home. But she said that she was laughing the entire car ride home just thinking about that scene. <laughs> I think just as a, I mean, I don't know as a man if the, the tampon scene was as hilarious to you. But for me, I think that was hilarious, especially when she woke up and it was still on her face. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is insane. <laughs> So I'm curious to see your thoughts on that scene. I will not go ahead and and say at all that I was not repulsed by the scene. Because I think actually I said out loud when she took it out and threw it out. I said, <laughs> ugh. Because <laughs> it caught me, it caught me off guard. And yeah, no, I don't care. You can sit here and say that I'm immature or whatever, but I'm not used to bloody pieces of cotton being pulled out from you. <laughs> And being thrown around like I'm not sensitized to that. I have no idea. I have no problem talking about periods and menstruations. Actually, I get annoyed when girls try to do that. Like, oh, it's, you know, it's that time. Okay, you're on your period. I got it. All right, go do your thing. Whatever. I don't care. Oh, a visit from Aunt Flo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah, no, but but seeing it now when... (laughs) She put it on war paint, and then when she woke up with it, and she went to hug Ivan, that was hilarious to me. That was just straight up hilarious to me. But yeah, that drug scene does have a lot more to say, and we already talked about how great it was visually. I thought it was an excellent scene. I think it's one of my favorite drug scenes that I've seen in movies. It's also one of those, kind of like train spotting. it has a horror moment in a movie that's not a horror movie. Yeah, I think it just... A part in this movie, this movie just surprised me in so many ways because there are some outlandish moments in it and it's so fun. I mean, the the comedy is there. Like I said, there's a lot of levity and and fun moments and this scene was fun. It was gross. It was horrific, but it also just was hilarious. (laughs) You know, it was just fun to watch it was just shocking in such a good way and i'm very happy that this was in this movie yeah great great scene (laughs) yeah this movie was had some good comedy to it like i said this has a range of emotions so you're gonna feel everything while watching this film and i I like that yeah it made it enjoyable throughout i said that there was another thing major event that happens during this relationship before we kind of get into her reuniting with Axel. She finds out she's pregnant at one point in this film. Or she believes she's pregnant. I still have a little bit of question about the resolution to that. And we'll get into that in momentarily. But she takes a pregnancy test. The pregnancy test is positive, And she has to face the idea that she might be a mother. Yeah, I think it was just a false positive. That's all. Because I know those tests aren't 
100% accurate. Yeah, that that's how I took it. I think I was a little confused at first because when I first saw the blood, I thought that, like, is she miscarrying? But the way that she acted, I do think it was a false positive as well. I'm not a real doctor, but I think there would be more blood if it was a miscarriage. Because I thought the first thing, I thought about it at first. Yeah, but the way she reacted and the amount of blood, my, again, not a doctor, my diagnosis was... Okay, it was a false positive. Yeah, that that's what I took from it too, but it, it did it did confuse me at first when I was watching. But it is interesting that for a while we sit with her believing that she's pregnant. We as an audience believe that she's pregnant. She as a character believes that she's pregnant. And we have to face the ramifications of that truly, even though it was false. It, it doesn't negate the kind of emotions that she felt at that time and what we felt alongside with her. And knowing that she's had issues with the idea of motherhood, it is interesting to see. And I think she's also a person that definitely believes that in a way your life kind of ends with motherhood. And we also saw some commentary on motherhood in the previous films as well. And this idea that you need to enjoy your life, do what you want to do, because when you become a mother or a parent, this just switch happens and then your whole life changes and it becomes less interesting, more boring. You won't be able to relate to people who aren't also mothers because you're just a whole new person now. And I think that's a really real fear, I think, with growing up that this director is so eloquently putting in his films. Yeah, I can definitely see it being a real thing for a lot of people. And in a relationship as well, it can mean that for both partners, whether they stay together or they don't, and a lot of decisions have to be made and a lot of tough things have to be asked. And I like how she goes to Axel, who she can have that kind of conversation with. And I'm glad she does because you get a very real conversation between the two. Where sometimes I was expecting one of them to kind of walk out or be appalled by what the other one just said. But they had that relationship where they can just say things like that. Mm-hmm. And they have... um like you said, a really honest conversation about it. And he says that he does think that she would make a good mother. And I think that kind of goes against that belief that she had, like I said, that she's the worst person in the world. Because the worst person in the world wouldn't be a good mother. But him saying that she is and kind of reinforcing that, I think it does do her a lot of good, even if she doesn't end up having the child or pursuing pregnancy or motherhood from what we saw in the film i love the way he tells her too of how not only would she be a great mother but how he wishes his only regret is how he was unable to make her realize how great she was transitioning off of that her reunion with axel and the kind of events that happen with that when she discovers that he has gotten pancreatic cancer and is basically living his last days. Uh, he's dying. He's in a hospital. And she comes and spends her time with him. For me, I think that was probably, other than the breakup scene, the more emotional part of the film. More sad part of the film. Because I think, I know for me personally, it kind of plays off fears that I have. Fears that I think many people can relate to. This idea that you're just out of time. And that something like this can happen. And you just be out of time. And maybe you've not lived the way that you've wanted to live, which I think is a, a theme throughout the movie. But there's also a a line that he says, and I think the fact that there's certain lines that have been so, that have stood out to me in all of these films, I think is a lot to say to the writer himself. 
But there's a line that he says, he's talking about, there's things about her that she remembers that he sees differently than she'll ever see herself. Things that she knows about her that she's probably forgotten, things that he's noticed. And he said, when I'm gone, all that stuff about you will go away. And I think that really was an unsettling line for me personally, because it's true. I mean, we talk about the way that she sees herself as the worst person in the world, but we don't really think about the way other sees us and the fact that there's this whole collection of moments that other people have in regards to how they view ourselves and how they remember things about us and the fact that they're just this whole trove of memories and views that go away once that person is no longer there and something that you'll never see or know about yourself truly. It's a hard truth to kind of face. I don't know if that stood out to you at all, but it definitely did for me. No, that scene did stand out for me. Like I said, there was two scenes that really stood out for me, two conversations. It was the breakup conversation and this one here, because this is the one in the car. He says a lot of things and they are unsettling, but they are things that we would think about. And that's where I think the morality theme comes in as well. Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard scene. And it's something that even if you didn't watch, it's something that's going to come up in your head someday anyway. I like this scene a lot. And this is something where, yeah, it must have been hard to write, must have been hard to act because it is a very tough thing that they're saying. This is where I absolutely think that he deserves a supporting actor award for this in every sense. I think this was his best performance yet that I've seen from him. And I know you mentioned that as well. Yeah, this is the scene I'm talking about too. When they play those clips, this is the one. Granted, it's already got kind of that those Oscar points in there, the things they love, terminal <laughs> illness, conversations in a car. But without all that, he could be healthy as could be. And they could be having this conversation in the brightest of places. And his acting is something to be complimented. Yeah, and I've seen so much praising her for her acting. And while I 100% agree, I'm glad that we can talk about his performance as well in this. What did you think of her acting? As I said, with her character, I had a lot of joy watching her character. I had a lot of fun. She had an expanded personality. And I don't think any of that would have been possible without her as the actress, without her bringing that to this character. Now, she was really living to be this character. I hope this wasn't just a a one-off and she goes back to Carpentry. I hope she can find that, that mix that Andres also performed with becoming doctor and an actor. I hope she does the same. But she's excellent in this film. And I'm pretty sure you agree all the same. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Because there's so much you can take from just her facial expressions too. Even moments when she's not really saying anything, her expressions are, are so emotive. I think you also get a lot of different looks from this character as well now thinking about it. There's a lot of times you see her with different types of makeup, no makeup, different hairstyles, not just showing the passage of time, but just kind of showing her in a different light, something that adds more to that realism. Yeah, I agree. And I liked a lot of her looks too. I think her outfits, I really enjoyed her outfits too in this film, which I I don't think they were particularly fashionable, but I don't know. She looked cute. (laughs) She put together some cute outfits without even like trying. (laughs) I agree. But yeah, like in the beginning of the film, we even saw her as a blonde until she dyes her hair at some point. At some point, I I thought that she was blonde in another scene later on, but I was wrong. But yeah, she does go through different, some different style changes. So what did you think of the ending to this film and how everything concludes? 
I say conclude. I don't feel that it really does conclude. <laughs> the conclusion or the epilogue? I mean, an epilogue is after the story, technically. Well, let's talk about the conclusion and then we'll go into epilogue. This is a story that can't really have an ending because it's a story of life. It doesn't necessarily even have a beginning. You know, it kind of just starts at a point of her life that was pivotal. And I think it ends at a point in her life, which was, again, pivotal. Ends with Anders dying and her, that was a portion of her life that ended. It started out early in her life. And that's where she spent a pivotal part of her life that extended over years. And now she has to continue forward with his death and with his memories and with his teachings and his love. And she now needs to continue with that. I think sometimes a slice of life movie or movies just showing something simple like this can sometimes have a hard time knowing where to end. But I think this ended at a good point. I think this ended at a good chapter in her life. For me, I felt almost disappointed that she wasn't there in his final moments but then I kind of thought about it and at one point he says you were the love of my life but I know but I'm not yours and I think that was rough and so the fact that she wasn't there in his final moments like he was with family and friends but she wasn't there it was rough I think it was kind of a tough pill to swallow as a uh, an audience of this film I took it as she was allowing these other people to spend time with him I think she already spent a great deal with him and Honestly, being there for the ending of his life, it wouldn't have made a difference. It wouldn't have added anything to the relationship. It's like they almost concluded already. They had that moment in the car. So now it's just time for him to be with his family and friends. If she was there, I think she would have taken away that attention. Yeah, I agree with that. I also kind of took it as though as maybe her feeling that she didn't have the right to those moments either. And her grief in dealing with that, her life has to continue and he's not her whole life. You know, I think there's a sort of grief there that I took away from it at least. Well, also think he didn't even call her and tell her about it. So there's a reason that he didn't want her to be there. He probably didn't want to be seen in that state by her. Hmm. This movie is a lot about memories And he may have wanted their final memories to be... Because they actually... The car wasn't their final memory. It was actually them going around and taking pictures. That was a very nice... If you had to have a final moment with somebody, that one is going to mean a great deal more than being with someone's family and friends with them on a Mm -hmm. deathbed. There's nothing intimate about that. Yeah, I didn't even think about the possibility of him calling her. I thought that at that point he was already so far gone at, over the night that he couldn't call her. I mean, I think that just goes to show too just how much we feel for this character and what she's going through and how much we've come throughout the film to relate to her and, and feel for her, even as the worst person in the world, so to speak. <laughs> Very much so to speak. You can go ahead with the epilogue. That's all I want to say. <laughs> I think the epic log ended more in a typical fashion, just showing her continuing on with her life as it should be. I think the the film was kind of just reminding you life goes on. Yeah, I mean, I found it interesting that she went back to photography at the end. But also, just something I, I thought about now, she takes stills for films. And I don't know, is that kind of meta? Because she's taking a still, so just a snapshot into this film, just kind of how this film is a snapshot into her life. And we kind of have those photography kind of parallels there. So I don't know. I liked it. (laughs) 
Yeah, you could see it like that. It could be meta. It could also just be the familiarity or the the relevance that film has in the director's life. Because he didn't even mean to when he made Reprise. He didn't realize how much him and the writer had put themselves into the project till people started asking questions. And they thought, oh crap, we did accidentally put a bit of ourselves into it. So, I don't know, it could be like triple meta. She was taking snapshots of a film in which he's taking snapshots of a life and putting it into film because he's taking snapshots of his life and putting it in her life which is I think my put- head hurts <laughs> it keeps going it goes all the way to the top yeah and I think at the end too there's uh once again I guess I don't know if surrealism is the right word but it doesn't feel realistic when she photographs this woman and then she looks out the window and the woman is with Ivan with their child now it didn't feel realistic but it also was an interesting turn and i think it kind of gave us a a glimpse of where she's at in life right now that could be real that could have been how she got the position in the movie oh yeah maybe because it shows that she she's able to have a relationship with somebody even after because she's able to walk away from points in her life without being angry at them so if her and Ivan if they just wanted different points in their life and they understood that and she was taking photos again because Ivan kept up with his last ex-girlfriend on Instagram probably kept up with her in the photos hey my girlfriend wife is an actress she can probably get you into film to take some of these photos yeah, I mean, I kind of took her expression in that scene as a bit of surprise, personally. That's how I viewed it. So I don't know if I, I fully believe that's how it went down. But I think it was kind of just a surprise and kind of just moment and just kind of how it's just life is. Just sometimes life just happens in a weird way and we can make connections that looking back on things and reminiscing on things and life works in mysterious ways. So before we go into our letter grade, I just want to talk a little bit about how this film fits. Do we feel like this movie was needed in this trilogy? Did it need to be a trilogy? Was it pointless? Was it welcomed? How do you feel about that? This being a loose trilogy, obviously it wasn't needed. There's not closure. There's no continuation of the stories before it. But I think this was definitely welcomed and wanted. If you were to ask me, Hey, would you want a third installment in this Oslo trilogy? Yes, most definitely I would want one. And I think with this director and what he's created in the past, I think anything is going to be welcomed by him. So I'm glad they made this into a trilogy. And I think they made the right decision calling it a trilogy. And I think this movie is also relevant for its time. Very relevant. Yeah, there's so many connections with these films that kind of expand on each other in different ways. And I think... Not even that the worst person in the world expands on the other two, but even Freeze expands on things that are in the worst person in the world. Oslo expands on things that were in Reprise. They all just are loosely connected, but there's themes that if you want the full effect of them, you can watch all three films and feel them more deeply. So I definitely think that this film is very much welcomed. It really fits into this trilogy. Is there anything you want to say about the trilogy as a whole? The trilogy as a whole works very well they do have those common themes but it's not like they're reciting the same message or the same theme they're just looking at it from different points of its complexity this works really well as a trilogy i think if you watch one you should watch all yeah and i was surprised at how much i related to each one of them 
ones that I would thought I would relate less to, there was still stuff in it that I related to. So I think he just really has a talent for capturing the human condition in these character studies. I agree on the relatability. I can as well. Maybe not with everything a character may be going through, but there are points that you can connect with. And also just in creating characters that you that aren't lovable all the time. I really appreciate it. I mentioned being angry with, with uh, Julia at points, but even in the previous films, there were times where I was just angry with the characters in those movies as well. It's like, I can really appreciate and enjoy this character, but I can also be frustrated for them and frustrated with what they're doing. And not frustrating to where it's like capitalized or it's emphasized in such a dramatic way. I like that too. It's not... The writer didn't at any point say, hey, I want the audience to now hate this character. Let's make them say something that cannot be taken any other way and just makes them look like a bad person or the worst person in light. So what letter grade would you give this film then? Let's go ahead and go to our ranking of the film uh, and then we'll talk about more of how we rank this with the rest of the trilogy. So what's your letter grade? At first I was sitting at an A or A minus, but as we're talking about it, this really is an A plus film. It's so, I usually say my plus is for when a movie is a bit more grand, but I think this is grand in a way. It just goes in a different direction direction but i think so much of this film is done so well and it gives such an introspect that you don't see a lot of that you have to give it bonus points on top of bonus points and i would give this an a plus i respect it i respect it i agree with you but i'm actually gonna go a step further and give this an s tier I think I was I was bordering A A plus for a while when I first finished watching this film. I was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely going to be an A A plus film. But then the past few days, I just kept thinking about it more and more and more, and thinking about how it built upon this trilogy and just stuck with me so much. And there's so much to say in this film, and so much that gave me feeling from this film. That I'm going to go and say it's an S tier. I can see this become my S tier. I actually have a prerequisite for my S tier. We actually talked about this before we even before we even had the podcast. I talked to you about how I tiered movies before, before we actually started doing this, just between you and I. And that is, I do need to watch the movie at least twice, and I do need some time to pass to see what the impact is going to be and how strongly it sits mm-hmm. with me. So I think this is... I mean, you can go ahead, call me on it now in a couple years, ask me about it again. I'll let you know if this is an S tier movie, but I can already say that, yeah, I can definitely see this staying with me and becoming that S tier. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. I think it'll be interesting to see when we do our look back episode, if it stays that way for me. But I don't know, just from thinking about this movie for the past few days, it's just, you know, the more I dissect it. There's more. There's so much to dissect in this film that, for me, it's going to sit at the S tier. So let's talk about our ranking then with the rest of the trilogy. This is something that I I think I'm struggling to do this even as I'm talking about it. I think I keep changing my mind back and forth so much times for this. So I I know you wanted to rank this movie and you said that you you've changed your mind as well. So so let's hear it. <laughs> yes, and looking at it. Yeah, I feel confident with mine. So this actually works just as it was produced and released. Reprise, 
Oslo, August 31st, and then the worst person in the world. The reason I put the worst person in the world at number one is because it combines Reprise and August 31st. I think the director really learned from his past work. He took that style from Reprise and he added it to that introspection that we have in August 31st and combined that in a near perfect way in this movie, if not perfect. Reprise, you know, we said it, it's not amateur, but by definition it is. And you do feel it a little bit and you do feel a bit of the experimentation there. And I think August 31st is a a better made movie. And that's why it sits at the rankings they do. And I feel confident in that. And it's good to see a trilogy like this where they just keep getting better because it started out excellent. I thought this was going to be another one where I thought the second was better than the rest. But no, this is a one, two, three. I think I'm going to have to agree with you. And... It's hard because when I've watched Reprise for the first time with my vague memory of Oslo behind me, I went through a sort of series of emotions where I was like, oh, this can't be better than Oslo August 31st. There's no way. And when I watched it, I'm like, oh, crap, this might be my favorite of all three. I haven't even rewatched the other one yet, but oh, my gosh, I love this film. I can't see anything beating this. And then I got to Oslo again. I was like, oh my gosh, this is even better than I remember it. Five stars, A+. And I felt like every time I watched the movie, I was like completely upending my list of ranking that I thought I had. And I might go back and rewatch Reprise after watching Worst Person in the World now and, and think, second guess myself again, I think that all of these films are, are amazing films. And I'm going to go and say that Joachim Trier is now probably one of my favorite directors. I also got to watch a movie, Thelma, by him. The only movie I haven't seen of his is Lauderman Bombs. I'm in a rush to go see it now, just so I can watch all of his filmography. But that film, while I don't think it's as good as the Oslo trilogy, shows so much promise and it's so much character in what this director accomplishes. This mesh of realism and, and surrealism that he does so well. Like I said, while I didn't like that film quite as much, just based off these three films, I think they're all just completely excellent. I'm going to be in a rush to watch whatever he puts out. No, this is a director that I am going to have to watch more of. And yeah, I can see myself saying that this is one of my favorite directors. I'm going to have to watch outside of this trilogy, of course, just to make sure that it's not just this trilogy that he is excelling at that he can work well with other projects. Yeah, like I said, the Thelma didn't really deliver for me. I would rank that significantly lower than this, but the things that it accomplishes, the type of relationships that it delves into and themes that it goes into definitely shows that this director is capable of handling mature, real, honest VH-word topics. <laughs> so... And I've heard, I think I've heard good things from Lauderman Bombs. That's the only one, like I said, I haven't seen. But I do think he truly excels in his character stories. Thelma, of course, had a little bit more of a, a complex plot than these other films. But as far as character stories go, which is, is what I love, he's excellent. I mean, we have a huge list of movies. <laughs> and I can start focusing on some directors. Yeah, this is one that... I want to explore more of. He doesn't have a very extensive filmography. Like I said, other than these three films, he only has two other feature-length films. 
So he's an easy one to get caught up in because you're more than halfway done. Yeah, hopefully he gets that Oscar nomination. It sounds like he's already got the buzz and publicity that's already putting him on the map. I think once he gets the nom, you get that Western awareness and people go out and check out the other two films. I think they'll people will start reaching out to him. Though I feel like he's also one that's not just going to take anything and he's not just going to throw out He's not going to be a Western sellout. (laughs) No, hopefully not. I don't know. I don't think he will be. Yeah, and I think just as just watching this trilogy, it really is, I don't want to say a love letter, but something close to it, to his the city that he's he's from and to his experiences. I don't foresee him being a Western sellout. And if he does, hey, do you? I understand. You got to make your money, especially if you want to go ahead and make another one of your projects. As long as there's a project in here in between, I'm happy. The passion projects. <laughs> Maybe not all that. Those usually don't live up. <laughs> I will be interested in seeing like Thelma. It had a more, it had more plot to it. It's kind of, I don't want to say it's a superhero film, but it's definitely about a girl with powers. I would be curious to see what he did with that with a bigger budget. <laughs> but I think we both agree that we definitely want more from this director as a whole, do you want more in the Oslo series of films? Or do you think that we've had enough of it? No, I'll gladly take another one of these. And not only will I gladly take another one, but I think there has been a large gap of time in between these films. The first one was 2006, second one was 2011, and now we have 2021. So one, him, he's going to learn a lot. He's still going to experience a lot in life. He's going to have more to say, I bet, whether it be in film or just in conversation. But I also think the world is going to continue to change. Like we said, it feels like almost like we're in a pivotal identity crisis in society itself that I'm sure there's going to be plenty of content in another 10 years. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I there's no limit for me of how many movies I can watch of this because they all offer something new and they're themes that it's themes that are always going to be relevant but it's interesting to see how things change within it and how society changes and like i said with the construction and the new buildings how the city itself changes and the environment changes he said he never really went out to set make some kind of like sociological study is that the right word sociological is that even a word (laughs) i think you know what i mean (laughs) but yeah, I but got you. Indirectly, he is. He is making that study, and it's something that I think that a lot of people will look back on in later years and learn from this as far as a cultural exploration. Most definitely. So, any final words you want to say on this trilogy? Yes. Actually, this goes out to our Norwegian audience member. Members, maybe, hopefully, by the time that this is released or during its release. We're sorry if we mispronunciated any of the names. I know I definitely did. Please feel free to correct us. And if you know what Oslo is like, please let us know in our social media. I'm guessing that's my cue to tell you where you can find us on social media. <laughs> you can find us. <laughs> 
on Twitter and Instagram at Op Silver Screen. We're also on Facebook at Operation Silver Screen, but that Twitter and Instagram is going to be Op Silver Screen. Please leave us a review. Leave us some comments in our social media as well as on our Apple Podcasts and Spotify pages. Any feedback you can give us is really going to be helpful, especially if you've liked this. We'd love to hear your thoughts on these films. And if you haven't watched this, we definitely do encourage you to and come and interact with us because we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can also find us us more personally on our own letterboxes. My letterbox is going to be at Coffee Spoon Kate. That's Coffee Spoon C-A-I-T. And Bryant, where can they find you on letterbox? They can find me on Swank Seal, capital S, capital S. And yes, please. So Caitlin and I, we did have a operational meeting where we discuss our future plans and looking back at our past statistics. We're doing really well. We appreciate all the support that you guys have been giving us. And please keep up that support and passing the word, especially with the reviews. The more that we get promoted and get out there, we can pass these milestones that we need to get to. There's a lot of content that we have planned for you guys. And also that feedback is going to help shape this show. This couldn't have said it any better. So yeah, we want to hear from you. Talk to us. <laughs> so till the next mission, I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. 